They haven't been able to edit out the nasally portion of my voice yet, though, so I can't help you there. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. Let's face it, bookkeeping is hard, and it's not really what you're good at anyway. Bench.co is the online bookkeeping service that pairs you with a team of dedicated bookkeepers who use simple, elegant software to do your bookkeeping for you. Check it out at bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber for 20% off today. They focus on what matters most, and that's why they're there. Once again, that's bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Wrangle.io. Wrangle's been working with Angular 2 for a long time. And they are now putting together an eight-hour, two-day course designed to help Angular developers learn how to write apps in Angular 2. If you're looking to level up your JavaScript and Angular 2 skills, then go to wrangle.io slash training and click on the link for Angular 2 training. If you're looking for other training in React or JavaScript, they also have that available at wrangle.io slash training. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 222 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. Dave Smith. Greetings. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick shout out about Angular Remote Conf and React Remote Conf coming up in the fall. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that is Keith Horwood. Hey, how's it going? You want to give us a brief introduction? Sure. So I'm the lead author of a project called Nodal, which is a Node.js MVC framework for very easily creating API services. Awesome. Now, that's pretty concise. I'm assuming that there's a bit to it. When looking at it, and Amy pointed this out to me, and then I you know, I went and looked at it again because I just kind of skimmed over it initially, is that it looks a lot like Rails. Yeah, yeah. So the story behind Nodal is a pretty long one. Um, well, actually, I, I mean, I think I can just shorten it down here. But I've been a, a developer who's worked with uh, a lot of different language and a lot of, a lot of different languages, sorry, and a lot of different frameworks. I really started web development with uh, with the LAMP stack, which I think is um, probably pretty familiar mm-hmm. to, to most devs um, in the space. And uh, from the LAMP stack, I migrated originally to Django and then spent a bit of time working with Rails. Now, once you start working with MVC frameworks, you just have this huge boost in productivity that you don't really want to give up at any point moving forward. The problem was is that like I really, really like JavaScript. Uh, from a perspective of just managing cognitive overhead, I suppose, decision-making, I prefer to just be able to work in like one language on the front and the back end. And I mean, I think that's, that's pretty common 
Um, now in the developer community, we've seen a bunch of, of tools revolving around this, and Node.js has obviously opened up that space. The problem is coming from like Django and Rails to Nodes, there wasn't anything as good <laughs> as Django or Rails in the Node space. There were a couple of frameworks. Um, I mean, Sales had its boost in popularity a, a few years ago, but it was based on like old JavaScript uh, known as ES5 syntax, um, lots of boilerplate, dealing with prototypes, weird language constructs that just kind of felt unfamiliar uh, from somebody who's built backends in Django and Rails. And yeah, I mean, coming from that perspective, when uh, when the Node.js IOJS fork happened, which was, uh, I don't know, I think uh, early last year, early 2015, maybe February or March, there was a pretty awesome opportunity in that the, the newest versions of the V8 engine that, that Node was running on supported modern JavaScript ES6 syntax, uh, which were things like class syntax for actually defining classes in a way that developers coming from other frameworks, other languages are kind of more used to. It's like this idiomatic way to set up classical inheritance and object-oriented programming. So I noticed the opportunity there to bring the design patterns that were really awesome from Rails and Django and uh, bring them into the node space. So once that IOJS fork happened, I, I started, I'd already been like throwing together frameworks in, in JavaScript, reinventing the wheel over and over and over again, building backends in Node, layered on top of Express and all of this stuff. Uh, so I said, for once and for all, now that we have class syntax in here, um, I'm going to bring the design patterns that us developers are used to um, from other big MVC players and bring it to the node space. I'm just trying to think of a joke here. You, you mentioned how you were kind of a hobbyist building JavaScript frameworks in your spare time. <laughs> and I thought, I thought you and every other JavaScript developer. Like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that's the, something interesting and unique about the JavaScript space, right, is that um, especially the, the Node space. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty common or like Node uh, was kind of founded on the, the Unix principles of like each piece of software each module should do like one thing really, really well. And so as the Node.js ecosystem exploded, everyone started making these small modules that did one thing really well. Um, and it was very effective from like a, a bare bones standpoint. If I just want to build a program that does something, I'm going to go on NPM. I'm, so I'm going to look through NPM packages. I'm going to figure out exactly what I need. The problem is, is that in web development in general, uh, when you're building like a web server, there's a lot of pieces of common and shared functionality that people recreate different small packages for. And all of a sudden it becomes like ordering off of, uh, I don't know, like a, a dinner menu at a fast food restaurant with like too many options. And you lose productivity because instead of being like, oh, I have all these options, I can create whatever I want. Now it's kind of like, wait, I don't really know what to choose. What's the best? And teams, especially, working on JavaScript projects together, because developers are all opinionated. I'm opinionated. Uh, I don't think I've worked with, with an engineer who doesn't really have some sort of opinion about how things should get built. And, and that's kind of what the, the value that frameworks provide, is they start curating some sort of common tool set for doing the same types of operations over and over. And in the case of MVC frameworks, it's really creating web servers. So, I, I mean, I, I think that's kind of unique in the Node space is people have kind of get, been giving pushback against frameworks, uh, really, since Node kind of erupted onto the scene. But I, I think everyone now, as more and more developers adopt it, people are like, no, you know what, okay, let's just get this stuff that we want to get out of the way done really, really quickly so we can actually focus on the cool stuff and start playing around with, I don't know, machine learning packages and, and things like that and get the web server stuff, the boring stuff out of the way. 
So I have a question. If I'm reading uh, your issues correctly, this was like a question that immediately came to my mind because, you know, having done a little bit of Rails before I jumped over to JavaScript, like this project looks really interesting to get newer developers being able to create something quickly, but there's still like one big difference between Ruby and JavaScript and that being like asynchronous flow. And it's kind of when you're new to programming, it, it can be a little bit difficult to wrap your mind around. So but the issue someone brought up um, using promises instead of callbacks. And so as someone who's been programming a little while now, like I definitely prefer promises over callbacks. So I'm curious, it looks like you have decided to hold off on promises and you're preferring that people still use callbacks and that you're hoping for async await to make it to the spec so that you could use that in the future? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm on the fence about that one right now. So I've read a lot of what uh, a developer, Brian LaRue, has written. He's the the main author, and, I, and I've talked to him a little bit. He's the main author of uh, Apache Cordova there, um, one of the lead authors of that project. And his opinion, when, when him and I were discussing it, his opinion on the space, and that I have a tendency to agree with, is that promises introduce extra complexity into application by introducing state. The fact that you can assign a promise to a variable and then it either has a state of like has executed, has not executed, has failed, has not failed, um, introduces extra complexity to your program. Whereas callbacks are for control flow management only. So there's less chance. It's kind of like giving developers enough... Uh, enough rope to kind of hang themselves with. Yes, even though newbie developers especially can get lost in this spaghetti code world uh, with tons of nested callbacks, it's still a way to manage control flow without ever having to worry about the state of callback execution. And, and that's what I think kind of actually simplifies that, that control flow process overall and why I prefer it as a design pattern at this point. Um, I know promises, I've kind of strayed a, a little bit away from the front end land over probably the last 18 months, but uh, I know promises have just taken over um, in, in terms of how developers are writing code and designing. It might be just that I haven't spent enough time really figuring out what those design patterns look like, but I, I still don't like that. Uh, that idea of, of just having that state behind the scenes that you have to potentially can shoot yourself in the foot on. So. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> cool. What would I build with Nodal? Yeah. So, I mean, Nodal is super focused on building API services in Node. We don't have any like template functionality, uh, any support for providing static assets. We used to in, in earlier versions of Nodal, but we, we kind of decided to take in the direction, uh, direction sorry, of um, just providing uh, functionality for API services. The insight there being that's kind of how developers uh, all across the industry are really thinking about building tools now. I mean, web development's come a long way in a, in a very short period of time. When, when Rails kind of started owning the scene there in the mid-2000s, People were treating the web browser uh, as if it was a client. I mean, it is. A web browser is a client. But you were essentially, your backend server was only focused with really providing view logic, all of that stuff, templates, et cetera, to the web browser. Now we've kind of had a shift in the way people think about developing applications. And that's that the server should be completely decoupled from your client-facing rendering logic, right? I mean, we've seen the rise of single-page applications, especially in the past like three to four years with Angular, with React, with, with whatever. And these single-page applications don't necessarily, I mean, some people are doing stuff with server-side rendering, but don't actually require server-side rendering of any sort of HTML or 
user interface logic whatsoever. So your API can be just completely focused on business logic. And this is how people are building applications now. So with that insight, I don't want to create like a catch-all solution that just lets you do everything. Though that's valuable for prototyping, I suppose, it's not really how people are building anymore. The added benefit of working with that API first layer and building that API as your central kind of block of your application is that that's what's going to be doing your service dispatch to third-party services if you're like, say, connecting to um, something like API.ai for, for some natural language processing or something like that, uh, you're going to offload that to a third-party service anyway. And you also have the ability to support any type of client without worrying about the client type. So a mobile app can connect to an API, um, a piece of like, like an IoT device, an Internet of Things device uh, can connect to an API. You're not worried about rendering logic or, or template logic whatsoever in those cases. Um, so I want to provide a, a generalist solution for building that system type of an API, knowing there's, uh, I mean, there's three things that developers really need um, to get a back-end API up and running. They obviously need their business logic, which is, which is what Nodal provides. They need to connect to a database layer, which Nodal has its object relational manager for, um, and they need a key value store, ideally, just for that faster storage of state, um, which we'll be getting into in the next few iterations of Nodal. One other interesting thing that I was reading about is that it looks like you have you're working on or you have plans to start supporting GraphQL with Nodal. Yeah, so I mean, this kind of it kind of just started out as like an experiment, as like a what if. When you're building an ORM, and I, I kind of wanted to build, I mean, the ORM syntax and everything in in Nodal. Uh, is completely borrowed from from Django. Django's ORM is fantastic. It's made made working with databases so easy. It was great. Uh, so I kind of borrowed a lot of patterns from that. But in order to support everything that Django's ORM does, you need to be able to essentially walk through the relationship graph or relationship tree of how all of your models uh, are, like your data models are related to one another. So you could have a user that plays a sport. And then from that user object, you want to be able to know what sport they play. Uh, maybe that sport has specific games associated with it. Throughout the year, you want to be able to associate that to the user. You have to traverse this relationship tree. And, and I realized, like, okay, I'm literally just doing graph traversal here. This is like, if I can find an effective way to do this graph traversal, it lends itself really easily to this GraphQL layer. Uh, so, I mean, that's what I did. I abstracted the, the ORM to the level so it actually just does a graph traversal um, between all your model relationships. Uh, and then I just created a, a mapping layer that's one-to-one -one maps that to a GraphQL query. So you can accept GraphQL. Um, we have a little bit modified syntax. I mean, there's no, the, the standard for GraphQL is still early, right? Uh, so we kind of accept our version of GraphQL. Uh, which maps to our ORM language, essentially, our domain-specific language for ORM, which then runs a query behind the scenes on a relational database. So I think that's what's really cool is, is we're not using like Mongo. We're, we're actually using a relational database. We're trying to keep it as normalized as possible and still being able to run GraphQL queries on it. So, so you're using Postgres, right? So what went into the decision for that? Postgres was... Very Rails-like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Postgres was just a familiarity decision, to be honest. The first database I ever really, truly worked with was MySQL with the LAMP stack. And uh, I love MySQL. It's great. Um, Postgres I've just been working with for a number of years, and it does a lot of things really, really well. It does support uh, JSONB, so you can still provide Postgres with unstructured data, uh, like you would with something like Mongo, and you can still query against unstructured data. So you don't lose that ability. And I just like Postgres overall. That It's kind of, uh, it's kind of a familiarity decision, um, and then just picking uh, what works. So 
uh, as kind of like an aside or related to that, um, I'm very opinionated about frameworks and the value that they add. Uh, we see a lot of frameworks in the front-end lands start offering things like, oh, okay, you can write your front-end application in, uh, you can use new ES6 syntax with Babel, or you can use ES5, or you can use TypeScript. In fact, I actually think this was a really huge problem with Angular, is that Angular let you do anything like almost any way you wanted. So Angular wasn't really a framework, per se, so at least the last version of Angular, the Angular 1.x, wasn't really a framework in the true sense, because I tend to be a purist here in, in that frameworks make decisions for you. That's the biggest value add. The biggest value add is that when you're in a team, an engineering team, before I was working on my current startup, I was the lead engineer at a startup called Storefront. The biggest value for an engineering team is having decisions made for you. So you don't have to get in a group together and say, hey, guys, what technologies are we going to use? What stack are we going to use? Why is this important? You're going to waste tons of engineering cycles just deciding on that. If frameworks make those decisions for you, uh, your current developers don't have to worry about that overhead. And as you onboard new developers, they don't have to start thinking about, oh, my gosh, what's the right way to do something here? Because they already have standard best practices for that framework. So I think the more options that you give developers in certain contexts with frameworks, the value of the framework actually continues to decrease. Um, we see a lot of generalist technology solutions that actually lose value by not being prescriptive enough and have a hard time capturing market share just because of that. So. I'm pretty opinionated in that space. So Postgres was a decision that was like, hey, no, I know this DBMS. Um, I like it. Developers trust it. This is the decision we're going with, and we're going to stick with it. So well, that's kind of interesting. Like, I agree with a lot of that. And I feel like as a newer developer, that's really important. But, you know, as you get better and more advanced, and especially I feel like with senior developers, like that kind of probably takes away a little bit of their fun and like the challenge of, having to make some of those those decisions. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a general evolution, uh, developer evolution, that uh, all of us tend to go through. And that's as junior developers, we kind of want to get things built and, and don't really necessarily understand how everything's working behind the scenes. So we go through this phase of like, okay, let's just get something done. Let's use the solution that's, that's best practices. Let's get it out of the way so I can actually build this application. Now, as you're doing that, you accrue technical debt. You're like, okay, I didn't do this properly. I didn't listen to best practices. So a, a few of us get chips on our shoulders. And then that's, that's not necessarily because the tool we were using was wrong or bad. It might just be because we didn't know enough about how to use the tool or the prescriptive best practices to work with it effectively. In fact, when I first dealt with Rails, I, um, I ran into this problem immediately in that uh, I just started building in Rails because that's what I do. And uh, I didn't follow the Rails best practices and read all the documentation on it and whatnot. So I started building a lot of pretty cumbersome stuff in Rails and, and had a had another developer come to me. I mean, I was a seasoned JavaScript developer at this point, not too much Rails experience. A developer come to me and be like, no, hey, you just didn't know all of these design patterns that, that Rails is going to encourage because you didn't read the docs on it. You just hacked it out. Um, so a lot of my frustration and a lot of the things I was created just was just because I didn't know what I didn't know, right? And so developers go through this phase of the junior developer. I'm going to accept this prescriptive solution because it gets something done. Um, you go to this intermediate phase where all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so frustrated. Every There's so much technical debt here. I just want to recreate everything from scratch. And then I think we kind of start developing towards this Zen stage of like, okay, no, I was a little bit hard-headed. The value here that was added was actually a great amount of value. And now we're just going to, uh, we're going to stick with that. We're going to go back to that prescriptive solution because I want to actually focus on, on making larger systems, more complex systems. I want to work with, with cool things like machine learning, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, I definitely see that. There is a lot of uh, pushback that's going on now, though, with the Ruby community with regards to Rails because it takes on so much within the context of the framework that a lot of times people have a hard time figuring out what all the pieces are and what's moving where and what's going on with, with what. You know, and so it's almost got this feature bloat problem now that people get upset about. Whereas other people say, well, it does all these things for me and it solves all these problems for me. And so they're still excited about it. And so it seems like there's a a balance to be reached, sort of, so to speak, uh, especially when it comes to particular people with particular problems. So how do you strike that balance? How do you figure out how much to prescribe and maybe where you may have stepped over the line for certain problems that certain developers are going to try and solve sure i mean so you always run into this this problem in development um it becomes a much larger problem the the larger the community is that's that's contributing to an open source project so so luckily with nodal i've still been the main author and in, in to this point so we've, we've been able to stray away from those problems with complexity but i i think it comes down to thinking about systems and use cases and, and what people are actually going to be building and at what point do you say okay I'm going to add this to this framework because, hey, I think developers want it and a bunch of people are asking for it. And for you to say, like, hey, no, this actually belongs to, like, a different problem class. You're solving something completely different here, right? Uh, an example I would make, that's kind of like Lucy in a definition, so I'll use a, a concrete example. Um, with Nodal specifically focusing on API servers, there was a lot of code that we actually just got to completely drop from the Nodal code base um, that had to do with templates, initialization, static asset compilation, like JavaScript, uh, SAS, that sort of stuff. Uh, we got to cut it from the project entirely, right? So we had start accumul started accumulating this technical debt, this bloat, this documentation bloat for all these features. And I was like, hey, well, what's actually like the, the common use case for Nodal? What's the actual cool things that people are doing with it? And I was like, you know what? It's really focused on this data manipulation, this ORM, this GraphQL type stuff. And uh, if people want to start serving static assets, then, I mean, front-end developers already know their workflows for uh for static asset compilation people are already using gulp and grunt and i mean i think there's complexity in that space too that can be reduced but it's not going to be a focus for nodal another good example would be we got really asked really early on like oh hey i want to use socket io with nodal i put my foot down pretty hard there and said well hey <laughs> look you can try if you want to but it's not going to work the way you expected to nodal is focused on just being a stateless API solution. Just essentially for like the skeleton of your application for getting those incoming HTTP requests and doing service dispatch and communicating with your database and doing some validation and business logic on the inside. But it follows that one request, one response model and it's very opinionated about that. So when somebody comes in and asks for like sockets, well, I could say like, actually, hey, you know what? A lot of people do want to build real-time systems. Let's have Nodal support that. But the, the way I kind of view this and the kind of the future of web development as a whole is in providing prescriptive solutions for systems. So to go to a developer that wants to bring in real time and say, hey, you know what? Nodal doesn't do real time, but there's another solution that you're going to want to spin up that's super specialized for real time that you can integrate here with Nodal. Or somebody says, oh, hey, I want a, a static server just to compile templates and all that stuff. Uh, in which case, I would say, hey, Look at um, this project called .com, which is at GitHub poly slash .com. Uh, no documentation right now, but pretty much all of the templating and compilation logic, at static asset compilation logic that was originally in Nodal, we offloaded it to a different project and said, no, hey, this is a different system that you're dealing with. It has different deployment requirements. It has different scaling requirements. So think about this as like a, a different product track. 
you're building like a static branding server or whatever, or you're building like an API server. If you're building an API server, use Nodal. That's that's the way I think about this. And the, the way I think you can avoid that complexity within a single project is by actually just thinking, no, actually, these are different products completely. So, so, so far we've talked about database integration with the Nodal ORM. We've talked about uh, API, like um, route dispatching, a URL uh, dispatcher. But it sure. looks like Nodal has a whole bunch of other services too, like scheduled tasks and uh, migrations and stuff like that. You want to talk about those? Sure. So I, I'm actually, uh, as of Nodal point eleven, we haven't worked on the scheduler much. We haven't had a lot of developers playing with Nodal that have been using the scheduler. A scheduler is a very important piece of the development stack in general. But I have some internal questions about where that's going to go. Uh, but in terms of database migrations, I mean, that's a core part of like an API layer. If you're saying that a stateless API system is going to have like three parts to it, like I mentioned, um, that it's going to have like that routing and that actual HTTP layer, it's going to do service dispatch, which is just third-party modules and stuff, um, but it's also going to save state in a database or a key value store, then you need to be able to manage that database, which is where migrations are just super useful. And I think Rails did migrations right. I, I think it's the easiest to reason about. So standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, I built out a migration system that pretty much matches Rails. Any developer coming from Rails will, will be familiar with the, the way that migrations work in Nodal. So that was the opinion there. Now, now the scheduled tasks, uh, I still have questions about where that's going to go and, and how that's going to evolve as, as part of Nodal uh, in general. So, Are you planning to provide a background task execution system similar to Ruby's, I think it's called Sidekick or uh, Python's Celery project? Yeah, I mean, so Sidekick is, uh, I mean, we, the the last production environment I was working on at, at Storefront, we used Sidekick exclusively for that. I mean, that was the basis for the scheduler for running those background tasks. From a larger systems design standpoint, uh, I'm still trying to figure out exactly where that fits in. Um, and how I'm going to manage that. So, I mean, the scheduler will work if you're spinning up your own development environments, but I, that's, uh, that API is definitely not stabilized right now in Nodal. So, so we're going to see that evolve over the next couple of months for sure. I have to say I definitely love Sidekick and some of the other tools that are built around those ideas. Very handy. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like really low hanging fruit of things developers have to do like all of the time that are required with like maintaining data consistency, running tasks. What's interesting about nodes is just because of the asynchronous nature, you can do some cool things just with API, like in the context of an API request that you wouldn't normally be able to do with Rails. So like what what's you use Sidekick for is you can like schedule an asynchronous task. If the user does something and then you need to send like an HTTP request because it's going to be hanging in the Rails environment um, and it's going to halt up that process and that thread, you normally just offload that to Sidekick. But in... Uh, in the context of Nodal, because we're running nodes, you can send an asynchronous request off from your API controller, actually terminate the API request for the user, but still have that go behind the scenes. And that's just because of the asynchronous non-blocking um, aspect of Node.js. So, I mean, that, that's kind of cool in that space. Solves that problem a little bit. Yeah, I've often wondered about that. I have not a back-end Node developer. I've only done Python on the back-end. But if you do that, does, is it kind of an unsafe situation where you have a web server that you like can't take down or can't take out of service because you have an unknown number of asynchronous requests that are just floating out there in memory somewhere? 
Perhaps, but uh, I'm really not too worried about that. I mean, so the way that we're actually approaching uh, the development of Nodal is we're kind of heading towards the the microservices architecture standpoint, and that's why we're we're very focused on. Uh, keeping nodal stateless, um, like not supporting socket requests, because the idea of infrastructure and, and architecture behind the scenes is that with, with modern day infrastructural solutions, uh, especially with stateless API requests um, and that a microservices type architecture, there's not going to be a specific server that your application is running on. A server could have been, a micro instance could have been spun up in 100 milliseconds instantly that serves your request, or it could be one that's been longstanding for like, I don't know, an hour or two. And and you don't know what's going to be handling this request. This is why you don't maintain state within the JavaScript application. Um, and, and this is kind of what, what Nodal's heading towards with being super opinionated about being stateless. If you do have a hanging API request in, in that context, then that micro container, whatever is spun up to handle that request, will shut down but you have an entire fleet of potential servers behind the scenes. So I'm really not too worried about that space with the way infrastructure is going and the way we're thinking about providing solutions there for developers. We've talked about sort of the different aspects of what's included, but could you get some flexibility on the ORM? Because I know that at least in Rails, a lot of people like to use something like Mongoid and get MongoDB or other things. And with that, it also occurs to me that you could also do something with it where if the C and or the controller part of the aspect of this isn't that opinionated and you could find a way to bolt on some layout stuff that you couldn't set an ORM for some kind of like local storage and then run it on the front end as well. Sorry, can you, can you get into a little bit more detail with what you mean at the, at the end there? Well, first of all, there were two questions there. And the first yeah, one yeah. was basically, you know, other databases or other ORMs. Are, are you looking at making it modular so that you can swap them out? Not at this point. I mean, that's the argument I was making earlier about uh, about the value of frameworks. Lots of developers have opinions about the types of technologies they want to work with, what they want to use, what they want their stack to look like. And that has a tendency to be in this middle phase of like, I'm figuring everything out. Uh, I don't like the technical debt that's been accrued in the past. This is what I saw works here. So why doesn't this prescriptive solution do it my way? I'm going to request this. But I also think you start very rapidly losing the value of a framework uh, when you start modularizing components like that. Because that number one value add, the value prop for a framework is minimizing cognitive overhead and allowing teams to execute quickly while still being maintainable, providing a common language, whatever. Um, the second you start providing more and more options, you start also opening up more and more question marks. Um, now, you, with the amount of community members that you're going to make happy because they got the options they wanted, uh, you're also going to collectively just introduce these potential bottlenecks for tons of other developers that are completely okay with just like, no, this is the solution I trusted, I'm okay with this. Um, so it's a slippery slope. The way that we've written the ORM uh, is actually makes it extensible to work with uh, any uh, SQL DBMS. But at this point, it's not a focus to provide modularity there. We'll be examining that for sure in the future, but it's not a top priority right now at this point. That makes sense. Yeah, and, and sorry, the second question was about... Um, I was you're mentioning something thinking about more templates? along the lines of what it would take to make it into a front-end framework, but um, <laughs> you would have to make it modular in that way in order to work around some of the other issues that are out there for the front-end. So, You know, if you want your browser to be an API server, for example. <laughs> well, it just seems... So MVC is a nice way of organizing logic, and it occurred to me that those who are familiar with the way that uh, the controllers in particular here work, if you could get some kind of templating engine on it, 
and then have an ORM that works well either with APIs or with front end storage, then you could be you could conceivably make it into a front end framework as well, and then you could have sort of similar systems on the front end and back end. But if that kind of extension is not at least on the table right now, then it makes it somewhat difficult in order to get it some makes it somewhat difficult to get those features in for the front end to make it viable that way. Yeah, I mean, but that's actually what's really interesting about the GraphQL space, right? So, and where I have like a lot of question marks personally is the point of GraphQL is to make it super easy and straightforward to provide a common language or interface for front-end developers to query a back-end system. So instead of like a RESTful interface story being like, oh, here's the API endpoint you need to hit, here are all the objects that you can possibly interface with, here are all of their relationships to one another, just write a query and grab exactly the data you need and then assemble your components on the client based on what you need there. Uh, and I think GraphQL is has the potential to grow into a super, super powerful tool um, for developers. I mean, we're already seeing that uh, in, in the React community. So that's where I'm interested in, in providing a solution. That's not part of Nodal. Nodal would just provide that web server endpoint that accepts a GraphQL query, right? And, and Nodal would be your backend that you can write all your logic for. But that GraphQL is really where it becomes interesting, I think, for front-end developers. And then building tools and SDKs in that space on the front ends would be something separate from Nodal, but something very interesting. So, Can we talk a little bit about API payloads? You mentioned that Nodal, of course, doesn't have a template language and uh, doesn't use any kind of templating at all. So it's up to you to... It's up to the developer to generate uh, API response payloads and to like prescribe what kind of uh, request payloads it'll accept, right? Yeah. Um, are you like limited to JSON? Is there are there other formats supported? You know, what does it look like? So we have a API response template that uh, comes with Nodal that's that's standardized across the board for most endpoints. It's when you call the this respond method, where this refers to the current controller. So it's the controller respond method that will automatically format either uh, an array, um, an object or a model or groups of models uh, into that, that pre-formatted API response that, that Nodal's used to. That gives you some metadata about the information saying like, okay, here's how many objects are here. If there's an offset in the database query you did, there's an offset and there's a count and the amount of total objects if you weren't to limit the query, that sort of thing. So Nodal takes care of all of that. And we'll do object nesting and cool stuff for, for GraphQL queries. But there's actually a lot of flexibility there, knowing that developers use APIs for different things. Uh, instead of calling the dot respond method, you can call the dot render method, um, which accepts objects, which it'll convert to JSON, just straight JSON, which will accept text, which will just be text. And it also accepts just buffers, like raw file buffers. If you had the edge case where like maybe you're doing, you're using like the image magic library or something, and um, this one API endpoint has to do multimedia and return an image, you can still do that with Nodal. So are you saying that, I, I'm, I'm not totally sure I follow, but it, it sounds like you're saying Nodal does have an opinion about the format and structure of your payloads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a pre-configured uh, format, a view format, for the majority of payloads that you're going to be sending back to the user anyway for Nodal. And in terms of accepting payloads, we convert everything into objects when it's received. But, uh, I mean, we accept objects from, sorry, we, we accept data from HTTP query parameters. You can send us any post data that you'd like. Um, so that, that's not an issue there. So is it okay if we talk a little bit about the ORM? Sure, yeah. So I'm pretty no familiar with the Django ORM, and uh, I've used it exclusively with Postgres. Oh, actually, and a little with uh, SQLite. Yep. But um, 
I, you said that your ORM was inspired by Django and Rails. Can you tell us if there were any interesting things where you were like, Django and Rails or, or Rails got this wrong and we're going to do it right in Nodal? Did you ever have any experiences like that? Yeah, I mean, so ORMs are neat. Rails has a lot of flexibility um, with the ORM in general, but also a lot of methods that kind of simplify common processes. Whereas uh, my, my experience with, with Django's ORM is that it's super flexible just by the comparators and like the operators, like for example, having the double underscore GTE saying mm-hmm. if this field is greater than or equal to whatever. And I mean, I think Django really covered the majority of use cases with the simplicity but extensibility of the way that it runs queries and the way that you can do model relationships by having X double underscore Y double underscore Z yeah. Uh, for repeated, yeah, for repeated relationships. Um, and that's what I loved about the Django ORM, and I, I wanted to replicate that functionality completely. Uh, we didn't have that function. There's <laughs> actually like an interesting story in there, is that functionality wasn't a part of Rails. And when I first started working with Rails, I got really frustrated that that functionality wasn't there, that I couldn't query in that way. Uh, so I actually wrote a module with a, with a coworker called Fast API that basically brought the Django ORM or aspects of the Django ORM to Rails. And uh, that project actually got quite a bit of popularity on on Hacker News. We haven't maintained it in a while because I kind of took everything we learned from that and uh, brought it into Nodal. But we haven't touched that in a while. It's available at, uh, let me check here. I think it's github.com slash the storefront slash fast API. So you can kind of see what inspired Nodal's ORM and then how we started or how I started thinking about how to build the ORM in Nodal from that. Just because Django had was like a class act and I mm-hmm. wanted to copy it. All right. So now I'm going to go a little bit esoteric on you. But okay. So, so far you've only talked about ORMs for reading data from the database. Sure. And Django has one weakness that I know of and that is outer joins. Uh, it just can't do it as far as I understand. Um, have you had that same problem with the nodal ORM. Yeah, I mean, we don't support outer joins right now with the, the nodal ORM. I mean, we might in, in the future. The way that I always tackle problems is, is go for the most common use case first. Um, I'm very, very interested in, in having the ORM be as robust as possible uh, because I think it's probably one of the greatest value adds um, for any framework is, is really how you can start mm-hmm. working with SQL without actually writing SQL. So yeah, no, we haven't uh, tackled that problem yet, but we do support uh, left joins to, to your heart's content. <laughs> so. so another one more esoteric ORM question. So uh, how does, actually, you know what, I'll save the esoteric one. Let's go to a general one first. How does the nodal ORM uh, work for updating data in the database? So both inserting and updating yeah, so this is where we kind of went with a Railsy approach as well as having a Django-like approach. This is where the, the Rails inspiration really came in. You update models and groups of models through uh, what's called this model array interface, which is essentially just like a collection of models. Um, and you just can do a dot .update on models and set all of the... Uh, the fields are a value to what you want, and then just save all of your models at once with like a .save all call. So that's somewhat similar to, to the Rails paradigm. We also have like a, a standard .update query where um, you can actually query for a subset of data and then call .update and set everything in that data set um, without touching the models at all. Just set everything in that data set to a specific value. So we kind of take a, a couple of approaches there. 
Yeah, the, re- the reason I was going to ask about that is because probably the number one source of ORM bugs for us on my team for the last four years is Django's save method on individual model instances. Um, and the, the, the esoteric thing there, and sorry if I'm going too far off in Django land, but yes. is it, it, overri- it saves all fields on the model. So if you have a model instance and you call save, it will stomp on every single field. And then they later added the ability to say, no, no, only save these fields. And what you described works around that problem, it sounds like, because you're forcing users to specify which fields they want to update. Well, actually, when we do updates, uh, when you do a model.save call, we don't save every property of the model. We only we actually check for what has changed in the model yeah. mm-hmm. since it was last retrieved from the database, and then yep. we specifically <laughs> save those fields. And that's how I think Django should have behaved, but now they're a victim of backward compatibility, and they have to keep doing it that way. I'm pretty sure that that's been a conversation in that community. So that's really good. Good for you. That's a lesson learned, I think. Yeah, for sure. For so sure. now everyone knows Nodal is better than Django. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm not. I'm not sure <laughs> if that's true, but uh, but thank you. I appreciate that. So I just have one more question. One of the cool things I liked about Rails was how easy you could start testing in it. So do you want to talk about that a little bit more in depth? Yeah, for actually running tests. Cool. This is. Uh, I'm really glad you asked this question because this is something I'm really happy with in Nodal that I don't have a whole lot of documentation on. Uh, and when I actually show it to people at meetups and stuff, people are like, wow, I didn't even know Nodal did that. We have complete test support for, for actually setting up tests for all of your controllers, specifically focused on controllers to begin with, that runs via Mocha. We run the, the Mocha test suite there. Uh, we have a little bit of a wrapper around it just so it's, it's idiomatic and, and easy to set up. But you can actually look at the GitHub repository for Nodal here. I'm going to bring it up while I'm talking about it just so. And when you start a new Nodal project, it actually automatically creates this runner file, which is going to run all of your tests for you. Um, and it's going to create two tests, an example test, which is just like a boilerplate, uh, which compares one and one. So you expect one should equal one and, and does some addition in there. Um, it actually does a test for your index controller to make sure that when you initialize a new project, uh, your index endpoint is actually returning a status of HTTP 200. And that's basically just to show you how tests should start working. Now, we don't have a whole lot of documentation through that, but it's, it's actually, if you just look at how tests are written from those two examples, um, it's pretty easy to wrap your head around. Uh, and, and I'm really happy with that because, I mean, we come with um, with a Travis, it will create projects with a Travis.yaml to, to instantly push to Travis CI and, and start running your tests for your nodal project. So the support there is full and it's awesome. We just need more uh, more docs around it. Speaking of testing, you may have just mentioned this, but one of the things I really like about Django is that it allows you to exercise your full URL as if you were an API client. Um, even though under the hood it's doing routing, it's not actually going through a, a server. Does, how does Nodal do that, or does it? Yeah, I'm looking at the code right now. That's exactly what it does. Um, in tests, they have a method uh, called endpoint. So when you're running a test, you can say this.endpoint and then just give it a URL. And it's going to run it through like the same sort of thing. It's not going to spin up a whole server to do it, but it's going to run it through the router um, and then do a call. So you can do this.endpoint, give it a specific URL endpoint, um, starting with a forward slash, and then say .get or .post or .put, et cetera, to actually do the, the correct HTTP request. And then you get the status code back, you get the headers, you get the body um, and if you, uh, your response was a JSON response, you also get the JSON response. Cool. So I have to ask, uh, you said it was in version 0.11 right now. When does it get to 1.0? <laughs> That's a good question. The answer is as soon as possible. 
I would like to have. You're the guy. Just change the version number. <laughs> uh, tomorrow, it's 1.0. No, I want to make sure before I give a 1.0 that the uh, the API is completely stabilized, and that means that the feature set that's in Nodal is not changing from this point forwards. Um, we might add to it, but we're not going to remove anything. Um, and that the API, that you, the actual interfaces that you're using to interface with the the ORM relationships, whatever, uh, that doesn't change. I'm still not 100% happy with the API. I don't think any developer is ever 100% happy with their APIs. You just got to like say, okay, it's a 1.0 now. But there are still a couple of large changes that I'm likely to make over the next month or two. And once that's done, uh, there's, there are some things that are solidified that are locked in. Um, and those are most of the things that people have been dealing with already. Uh, like for the most part, the, the ORM API is locked in, the model API is locked in, the controller API locked in. But there's things that we've talked about earlier, uh, like related to scheduling and that sort of thing that aren't necessarily locked into the framework. So when you push a 1.0, you're making uh, not just an implicit, an explicit promise to, to your community and to developers using Nodal in production. You're making an explicit promise and saying like, hey, we're not going to mess this up on you and you're going to be supported from here on out. Um, and I think having that trust and that faith is super, super important. The early adopters, they're okay with changes or whatever. But when you're really heading towards like, hey, yeah, we want enterprise developers to use this, you have to be able to ensure that level of stability. Um, and when I put that stamp of approval on there and says, say, this is 1.0, this isn't changing, this has been um, inspected up and down, full test suite, whatever. That's the 1.0 mark, and that that'll be that'll be soon. But there's still a couple of of changes uh, and overall architectural design patterns I want to kind of mess with before uh, before I go to 1.0. So the other question I have, and I had to step out for a minute, so I may have missed it, was if somebody wants to start a new project with Nodal, is it just npm install minus g Nodal and then Nodal new, or is there more to it than that? That is. It to start with. Right now, you uh, if you want to start working with the database, you obviously have to install Postgres, and that's Postgres 9.2. Now, we actually kind of want to get away from that uh, altogether. So, so my view of this space of creating APIs and creating systems in general, the sort of larger vision, is that software developers shouldn't have to think about setting up infrastructure or managing hardware or managing database installs and whatnot. But I kind of want to take a different approach to that. So uh, I'm pretty sure that um, over the next couple of months here, uh, we're going to be offering services uh, around this so that you won't have to install Postgres on your own machine. Um, and you're going to be able to use our servers and our services for uh, for prototyping. Um, I just want to lower the barrier to entry as much as possible so you can get your application up and running as quickly as possible. Is there anything else that we should have asked about Nodal that we didn't? I think you covered a lot of questions. There's a, a larger vision outside of the context of Nodal, and that uh, questions I get asked a lot. One question I get asked all the time that we kind of touched on earlier is like, oh, do you have like a, a socket? Do you support web sockets? Because we want to start building real-time systems. And what about PubSub and all of that fun stuff? And my immediate answer is that, uh, well, one, as a, as a single <laughs> human being and developer, um, there's only so much I can do as a single developer uh, at a time. But I am very, very interested in, in growing an ecosystem of complementary uh, software ar around Nodal, whether that's 
going with solutions that already exist in the open source community. Somebody has a great single page application framework that uh, plays really well with with a backend that's styled like Nodal. Whether that's what the ecosystem looks like or whether we get awesome, brilliant developers coming into the Nodal community saying, no, hey, I've got a really good front end solution here for developers who have a Nodal API backend. Um, that the, or I have an awesome real time layer uh, that's going to play really well with Nodal when you run it as its own service. That's where I, I'm really interested in growing this this ecosystem of this space. And I think that's something that um, that older projects and frameworks, the being monolithic, have kind of traditionally missed the boat on a little bit. Is they try to absorb everything. Oh, this developer wants this piece of functionality here. Oh, let's just keep adding it to the framework. When I think there's a, there's the ability to do a much more communal approach to development and saying like, no, hey, you're going to be building these different types of systems. An API is going to be central, but you're also going to have your SPA. You want real-time chat or PubSub or whatever, so use this other service for that. Uh, and start really bringing up a bunch of services and, and create an ecosystem with the community uh, is something that's really enticing and, and exciting for me as a space. So Because we can keep projects small and keep working quickly on them. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Dave, do you have some picks for us? Oh, you know I do. So coming up this September on... September 16th this year, 2016, we will be hosting the fifth annual Utah JS conference here in beautiful Salt Lake City. And uh, it's looking to be awesome. We just barely put early bird tickets on sale. And this event is going to be really cool. We have a lot of great people coming in, locals and people from out of state. So I think this is the best kept secret in the JavaScript community, really. So go over and get your tickets at conf.utahjs.com and come say hi if you come to the conference. It's Utah.js. Who do you have to bring in? <laughs> all, the, all the JavaScript developers are already there. We're already in Utah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just kidding. There's well, we, we might get one or two from California. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Amy, what are your picks? Okay, I have two. So this one is a really short blog post, and it's probably geared towards more like beginner, mid-level developers, but it's called uh, Writing Good Code, How to Reduce the Cognitive Overhead of Your Code. So I think it just has some like very simple tips that you can do. It's based on a book called uh, Code Complete that's pretty good. So it's a short read, and I thought it was worth it. And then the second one I have, it's been a couple episodes since I picked like a health pick. So this is something I started taking it last year. And again, you know, I only pick stuff because I really do feel like it makes a difference. But someone recommended it to me. It's called uh, Natural Column. It's like a magnesium supplement. And so apparently, like when your body is under stress for a long period of time, um, like your magnesium gets depleted. And in the past, you know, because kind of our like agriculture industry has changed, you could get a lot of magnesium from eating like fruits and vegetables because it was in the soil. But now that we're doing things a different way, there's not as much in the soil, so you don't get magnesium as easily. So, anyways, and you have to you have to eat like very large amounts of foods to get like your recommended daily dose of magnesium. But anyway, so this is a drink, and I'll put a link in the show notes, and I I really do feel like it's helped. But that's it for me. Cool. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. The first one is is that, and I've mentioned this on some of the other shows, so if you listen to them, sorry. But the first one, I was on vacation yes, or last week. We went out to Oklahoma, and we were on some private property with a private lake, and it was really nice just to get away. Uh, one of the nicest features of the place we were in was that there was no cell service and no internet, which I know some people would go through withdrawals. 
But for me, it was just nice to not have to worry about any of that. There was no interruption. I could just spend time with my family, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm going to pick that. Uh, one other thing that I'm going to pick, I tried this a few weeks ago. If you're a fan of Saran Yitbark, uh, who is and will be coming back to the Ruby Rogues podcast, by the time this comes out, it's going to be public knowledge. She uh, she does a Twitter chat every week on Wednesday evening. That's at 9 o'clock Eastern, which is 7 o'clock uh, Mountain Time for me. Uh, it goes for about an hour. She asks a handful of questions on Twitter, and you get to chat with all the other people who are chatting using the hashtag CodeNewbie. And I really, really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. So if you want to hop on and uh, have some of those conversations, I'm probably going to be doing it, at least for the foreseeable future. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. There are a couple of things I want to let people know about. Um, this episode will come out right around when Newbie Remote Conf is going on. So if you're a new programmer and you want to hear some awesome talks uh, aimed at newbies, you can check that out. That's July 13th through 15th. I'm also putting on Robots Remote Conf, which is August 10th through 12th. That's robots and IoT, incidentally. And then specifically germane to this uh, podcast, Angular Remote Conf, September 14th through 16th, which actually conflicts with Utah JS. So you can just do double duty, right? You can watch it while you're sitting in a Utah JS session. <laughs> Sounds um, like a good use of time. React Remote Conf is going to be October 26th through 28th. And since we talked about Rails, Rails Remote Conf is going to be October 12th through 14th. You can find all of those at allremoteconfs.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as links to each of those conferences. We are still accepting proposals to speak at all of those except for Newbie Remote Conf at this point. So if you are interested at all in speaking, then go check out those conferences and submit a talk. Uh, also, I'm doing early bird pricing for those. So if you sign up for any of those uh, with a month or more before the conference starts, then you can get the early bird pricing, which at this point is 50% off. So anyway, hopefully I stalled long enough for Keith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, my picks, I would love feedback from the development community in general on one of the Medium articles uh, I wrote talking about um, modern web development architecture called React IoT Bots API, Why Web Development Needs a Change, which is kind of my opinion on the, the future of web architecture, um, as well as I just came across something pretty cool. Um, somebody built a Fortran web framework. I uh, just we're, we're talking about the framework space, wow. um, and it's, it's, it's kind of... Fortran community is always writing new frameworks. <laughs> so um, it, I have it's kind total of... Fortran fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's kind of cute. It's it's a cool project. Um, I shouldn't say cute. It's it's a very impressive project. Uh, and so it'd be cool. It's it's on Map uh, GitHub Map Meld slash Fortran Machine. People should uh, should check it out. A good amount of effort went into it. So all right. Well, if people want to find out more about Nodal or check in on what you're doing, what should they do? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, Nodal is available uh, on GitHub, um, which is uh, just on my GitHub, KeithWHOR slash Nodal. Feel free to, uh, I mean, contributions are, are completely open. Um, you'll have to submit a PR, but we're always looking for community contributors and people to uh, to really help push the needle forward. When I talk about uh, building systems, 
We're actually, uh, I've actually founded a startup called Polybits, uh, where we're focused on providing infrastructure solutions for developers who are building systems like API services with Nodal. Um, and when I talk about those other types of systems, like real-time systems, uh, launching SPAs, things like that, um, building infrastructural solutions uh, specifically focused around those system types. Um, so you can check that out at polybit.com and, and keep in touch. We're, we're actively hiring. So if, if uh, you're a talented JavaScript developer and, and you want to join something cool, um, feel free to uh, to email me directly. So I got to go back to the Fortran thing. This is so <laughs> awesome. On their website, it says, this is an MVC web stack written in Fortran 90. So you get arrays and it's not punch cards. <laughs> <laughs> There's a glowing recommendation right there. It's not punch cards. I know. I'm so tired of writing my web frameworks in, in punch <laughs> cards. I know, right? <laughs> this is so cool. All right, well, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up the show, and we'll catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit dot com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 